Cusick Law's Fighting for Justice Radio. Don't underestimate the other guys, Green. Robert, Mark, and Reed. You have the right to remain silent. Let me shut up. It's 30 minutes away. I'll be there in 10. They see me rolling. They hate Patrolling and trying to get me right Laws Fighting for Justice Radio analyzes civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and covers all legal current events. Each week, Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice features newsmakers, attorneys, media personalities, celebrities, experts, business people, and so much more. Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice. Straight talk, no nonsense. I'm going to make them an offer again with you. Now it's time for Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice Radio. Here are your hosts, Robert, Mark, and Reed. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for listening. We really do appreciate it. We have another fantastic show for you today. But remember, check out our website at kuziklaw.com. Please let your friends know about the show. Your friends can listen to our podcast on iTunes at www.blogtalkradio.com slash kuziklaw. Here on Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio with Reed Brightman, Robert Ryan, and Mark Leonardo, we analyze civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and we cover legal current events. Today, we're going to analyze five news stories of the week, and then after that, we'll do Reed's rant to wrap things up. Again, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice. Now, the first story of the week. We have an audio clip about a school bus crash in Chattanooga. What I do have to tell you is a warrant has been issued to remove the black box from the bus and review the evidence on the video camera or cameras on the bus. We also know that there are currently five fatalities amongst the school children that were on that bus. The updates I have to give you are that we have arrested the bus driver of that school bus. His name is Jonathan Walker. He is 24 years old. We are working diligently to ensure that all of the other children who have received care at the hospitals or may have been transported to other locations are reunited successfully with their families. Jonathan Walker is being charged with five counts of vehicular homicide, reckless endangerment, and reckless driving to begin with. There may be more charges added as this proceeds to the grand jury here in Hamilton County. Robert, tell us about this total tragedy. It's, it's a heartbreak. Well, I think we, I can safely say that the entire country has been horrified by this report of this terrible, terrible school bus crash that took place on Monday in Chattanooga, Tennessee. You know, 37 students, kindergartners up to uh, the fifth grade, left uh, Wood, Woodmore Elementary School in Chattanooga uh, shortly after lunch on Monday after celebrating a Thanksgiving Day lunch special. Um, the school bus uh, traveling down a curved road apparently too fast uh, for the conditions. Uh, the driver lost control, hit a retaining wall, went through a mailbox, smashed into a telephone pole, and then finally wrapped itself around a tree where it split open. As we just heard from that clip by the police chief of Chattanooga, Fred Fletcher, uh, five uh, children were killed, uh, ranging uh, from a kindergartner to uh, four fourth graders. An additional six are in the intensive care unit with 
spinal cord injuries, traumatic brain injuries, and other very serious life-threatening conditions, as well as numerous other children also being treated and having been released with uh, scrapes and things of that nature. It is a nightmare. What? How does this? You know, they're charging Johnson E. Walker, the bus driver, with vehicular homicide. How does this differ from just a, a tragic accident? Was, was was he on drugs, or what? What what brought it? His his state of mind to the point where this is criminal conduct as opposed to just an accident. Well, that's a that's an excellent question. You know, I mean, a lot of times we have this situation here in our own practice at Kuzaklo where somebody's involved in an accident, and if there's a fatality. If the driver has engaged in a violation of a law, even if it's a misdemeanor traffic violation, you can actually be accused of, of a vehicular homicide or negligent homicide as a result. And apparently that's the situation here with 24-year-old Jonathan e. Walker, the driver of the bus. Um, They've already confirmed that there were no drugs or alcohol in Mr. Walker's system at the time of the accident. However, they have fairly uh, certainly concluded that he was speeding. He was traveling in a 30-mile-per-hour zone, and they have witnesses, plus they have now gotten uh, the footage from the uh, the cameras on the bus, and also the black box has been removed from the bus. Um, and all indications are is that he was exceeding the speed limit by a significant amount. And so, therefore, if he was speeding and his speed was a factor in causing the crash, which resulted in these young children's deaths, then he can be held liable under uh, Tennessee criminal statutes for vehicular homicide, which apparently he has now been charged with and is subject to uh, actually has been arrested. Hey, Robert. Well, Robert, you always hear about black boxes on airplane crashes. Is that the same kind of thing for cars? Well, you know, many people don't realize that there is something called the ECM or electronic control module, which is in most late model cars and apparently on the school bus as well. And that that records things such as acceleration, throttle operation, the application of brakes, and it can also also indicate um, the speed of a vehicle in the moments leading up to a crash. So it can be a really important uh, source of uh, of data for information concerning how the crash has happened and whether the operator of the vehicle uh, that the black box is taken from has been guilty of speeding or exactly what the what the operation of the vehicle entailed right before the impact. You know, here at Kuzik Law, we always focus on that with respect to the crashes that uh, we handle on behalf of our clients where we can get very valuable data from these ECMs, as they're called, uh, that can help us determine fault, can help us determine liability, and it can help us build a case on behalf of our clients against the responsible party. Robert, in this, in a case like this, it's, it's obviously a horrible tragedy, and the families have been completely devastated. And if this bus driver is convicted of vehicular homicide, that may bring some comfort and justice to the families, but it's not going to help them financially with with potentially huge medical bills for the children that were that suffered spinal injuries and brain injuries and survived. Um, what's the liability? I mean, this bus driver probably doesn't have very much. Do you, do you, would the school district or the local government uh, be responsible for this driver's conduct if it was, in fact, uh, even if he was convicted of vehicular homicide? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because 
the school department and the school district where these children were attending school had nothing to do with the retention of this bus or this bus driver. That is handled by a county, by the county, Hamilton County, uh, which is where the school district was located. And it's a national company that operates this bus, and that bus company is going to have insurance. Um, whether it's going to have insurance sufficient to uh, cover the damage claims involved in five deceased children, um, the six really seriously injured ones that may yet, uh, it's an open question whether they're going to survive that are in intensive care, and then plus the other, you know, approximately 25 or 26 children who are injured to some lesser degree, that's going to be an open question. Obviously, you know, the school bus driver is in the course and scope of his employment for the school bus company at the time of the accident, and if it turns out that he was acting negligently, which all indications are he was by speeding around this curve um, in the school bus, then they would be liable. But, of course, then the issue becomes where's the insurance that, uh, that can cover that, uh, that liability. Right. All right. Well, we'll keep tuned to see what the developments are in that case. What a tragedy. Uh, my heart goes out to all of those families. There's one more issue, though, before we move on from this story, and a lot of people have been commenting is, why did the school bus not have seat belts? You know, it's pretty common that school, bus, uh, school buses in this country are not equipped with seat belts, and as a matter of fact, only six states out of the 50 actually require them. Um, and the issue always is, is, well, school buses are yellow, they move slow, um, and they're large, and they're typically not involved in a fatal crash or a crash where a seatbelt will become an issue. But I would look for, you know, in pressure, more pressure and more publicity from this particular accident to lead to a move to try to really pass a national standard that would govern uh, all school buses in this country and require them to have belts. Whether that would have helped these poor unfortunate children, obviously, we'll never know, but it's something we may want to keep an eye on in the future. Bet you it probably would have helped. It's crazy that school buses don't have seat belts, uh, and at the very least they should have them. And then the children and the parents of those children can decide whether they're going to use them. Uh, but that's that's nuts. Seat belts save lives and prevent injuries every minute of every day. All right, uh, you're listening to Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice Radio, and we're going to move on to Mark's story about a wrongful death suit in a Yale graduate student's death. It was settled, and this is where a one graduate student was was brutally strangled by a, an employee of the university. Mark, tell us about the story. Yes, uh, Yale University settled a wrongful death lawsuit filed by the family of a graduate student who was killed in a research lab back in 2009, just five days before she was scheduled to get married. Uh, the case got resolved in the past week through mediation, and the, the settlement terms weren't publicly disclosed, but then through the probate records, it was ascertained that Yale agreed to pay the family $3 million. So this Yale graduate student, her name was Annie Lee, she disappeared September 8, 2009. She was found dead, stuffed inside of a wall in the lab building where she had been killed by, uh, by strangulation um, by another student. She was actually a, a native of Placerville, California, and she was only 24 years old when she died. And uh, her mother, Vivian Van Lee, she filed this lawsuit back in 2011, and she alleged that Yale had failed to adequately protect women on campus for a number of years. Uh, her lawsuit also alleged that the school officials did not investigate 
her daughter's absence in earnest until the following morning. And she also accused the college of insufficiently addressing incidents of sexual harassment and sexual assaults on campus. So this has been an ongoing problem there, you know, purportedly. Uh, I mean, a lot of the, universities and colleges have that that same issue. But wasn't the, the here? I, I, I thought the the perpetrator of this crime was actually an animal research technician. Was that is that a student or an employee? Um, he was a let's see. She was a third year doctoral student in pharmacology. Uh, right. And he was a lab technician there in the uh, Yale Animal Research Center. Right, so if he's a lab technician, if he's an employee, I could see some liability for the university under respondeat superior, you know, employers or are generally responsible for the conduct of their employees. But um, Well, not when they're murdering students, though, I wouldn't imagine. Yeah, probably not, yeah. But um, if they if they didn't do a background check or they had some negligence in having him there or they didn't have appropriate security, I guess that's what the plaintiff was alleging. But if it's a student, you know, I, I would think it would be more difficult. But again, that's the question that a lot of universities face. You know, what what's the proper balance of, you know, spending money on security? And, you know, you're not going to have a security guard sitting in every classroom and, and monitoring every hallway. But, you know, you can't have, you know, uh, dark passages and, and no lighting in, in areas that, that are really dangerous. So, so Mark, tough, was was the was the family able to show that there was something that Yale uh, didn't do that would have prevented this young woman's death, or was it a situation where, rather than have all those questions possibly answered in the negative, Yale just decided to settle? It seems like that's the case because Yale they were arguing that you know no additional security measures could have prevented the killing, and they said that. Um, they had no information that the person, the perpetrator, Raymond Clark, was capable of committing, you know, this terrible crime. And uh, he ended up pleading guilty, and he's serving 54 years in prison for this. And he, he made an interesting statement at a sentencing hearing. He said, uh, Annie was and will always be a wonderful person, by far a better person than I will ever be in my life. Well, I guess that's a true statement. Um, we also had yeah, the... Uh, with respect to Yale and their other claims there, the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights, back in 2011, they announced that they were investigating complaints by Yale students that the university had failed to properly respond to sexual harassment concerns. And then this, uh, the Lee family civil lawsuit cites the federal probe of a complaint from current and former Yale students that violates uh, Title IX. That's one of the several educational reforms that was passed back in 1972 that prohibits the exclusion of anyone on the basis of sex from educational programs that are directly funded by the federal government. And Lee's attorney said that Yale's persistent tolerance of sexual harassment and sexual assaults, assaults on campus caused the students to file the complaints against Yale University. So, you know, just five days before she was being married, you know, Annie Lee was a victim of that environment. So that was the claim that they were making here. But since since then, what Yale has done is they've updated their workplace violence prevention policy, um, stating, stating they now have a zero tolerance for any violence or threatening behavior. And they've also added a violence prevention training for curriculum managers and background checks for temporary workers hired through agencies, as well as their vendors with electronic access to Yale's building. So it's kind of unfortunate to have this kind of an incident to take all those measures, but sometimes that's what 
happens in order to for things to get changed. Yeah, kind of like the school bus case. You know, maybe that's what it took to happen to get you know some national standard to have seatbelts in school buses. All right, let's move on to Robert's story. Uh, the Bobby Christina Brown estate was awarded $36 million in a wrongful death suit against Nick Gordon. But, uh, Robert, it seems to me like it's probably a Pyrrhic victory because this guy's never going to be able to pay any part of that. Uh, tell, me, tell, me about the, tell me about this case. Well, let's see. Um, you know, we had this unfortunate thing where – uh, Nick Gordon, the boyfriend of Bobby Christina Brown, the daughter of Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown, uh, in January of 2015, was found face down in a bathtub. Um, Gordon, uh, according to police reports, administered CPR, tried to administer first aid, called uh, uh, 911. The ambulance came, and they were never able to resuscitate uh, Bobby Christina. Um, she ended up uh, dying in a in a long-term care facility six months later without ever having gained regained consciousness. Now, of course, we all know about Bobby Christina Brown from her from her starring on uh, Bobby Brown's reality show, being Bobby Brown, and also a reality show starring both her mother Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown called The Houston's. Um, Whitney Houston, of course, had her own problems with drug abuse and uh, uh, drug addiction, and died tragically in a in a bathtub in uh, a Beverly Hills hotel room uh, several years earlier. Um, apparently, the whole premise of this lawsuit may have been somewhat misguided. Um, as you as you just alluded to, Reed, whether they're ever going to be able to recover any of this money, that's kind of a moot point because Nick Gordon but kind of a, bo- a childhood sweetheart of Bobby Christina, um, doesn't really have any assets to respond. And in fact, he never responded to the lawsuit. This, right. this was all entered pursuant to what's, what we call a default in the law, which is when you file a lawsuit against somebody and they don't actually appear and contest it. So um, he had filed an answer to the complaint, but that was stricken when he didn't attend court hearings. He had never actually contested the allegations. He had never hired counsel. And so now the judge has awarded him to pay $36 million, and there's a judgment against him in that amount. But, you know, where are you going to get the money? Well, I think he, it's, it's, this is an interesting thing because it seems that it would be very difficult to prove the plaintiff's allegation in that case because uh, – Bobby Christina Brown was known to abuse drugs, and she did have, you know, various drugs in her system like cocaine and morphine and things, and this certainly wasn't a first for her. And there's no witness that says he put her in a bathtub face down. Um, it would have been, I think it would have been very difficult, but of course when they, when you, when Nick Gordon didn't respond to the lawsuit within the time period, and apparently he was given several chances, uh, all of the allegations in the plaintiff's complaint are deemed true. So, of course, that's what happened here. But he did have uh, criminal counsel, and there is an ongoing investigation, and it could be that his criminal counsel said, hey, you can't defend yourself. You can't appear. You can't say anything, because anything you say in defending yourself in this civil case, the wrongful death case, could be used potentially to uh, charge you or as evidence in a, in a criminal case against you where you can go to jail for the rest of your life. Well, that's so, an interesting point. You know, um, there are proceedings or there are procedures where you can get civil action stayed. We all remember the O.J. Simpson case where a right. wrongful death lawsuit was filed against him by the family of Nicole Brown, uh, 
Kidman, and uh, that was stayed until the criminal case uh, uh, was completed. Now, in this particular this particular situation, though, there's something very interesting because it begs the question: Why was the lawsuit filed in the first place? Now, people may, may recall that Bobby Christina Brown at one point announced her marriage to Mr. Gordon. Okay, And remember, Bobby Christina Brown was a very wealthy young woman because she had been determined to be the sole heir of the Whitney Brown estate because Bobby Brown had since become divorced from Whitney. And so she was the only one who controlled the multi-million dollars that Whitney Houston has coming to her as a result of her song royalties and her performances and her rec- recordings and all of these things. Plus and she had $20 million in, in a trust. Yeah, that so... so so I think the issue with respect to the estate may have been that, indeed, if there had been a marriage between Nick Gordon and Bobby Christina, then Nick Gordon may have been uh, in next in line to, to uh, succeed to all of those assets. Right. Now, of course, it turned out subsequently that that was false, that Bobby Christina had never actually married Nick Gordon. But that didn't come out until after the lawsuit had already been filed. So you have a situation here where maybe the estate was operating under the premise that it wanted to make sure that it had some counterclaim against Mr. Gordon in the event that he was going to get his hands on Whitney's millions. That proved not to be the case, so maybe that's also why Mr. Gordon didn't bother to defend as well. Yeah, it probably had something to do with it. Um, all right, you're listening to Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice Radio, and we're going to move on to a, an interesting case, the uh, an Obama administration policy that would have given more white-collar workers overtime starting December 1st was blocked nationwide by a federal judge in Texas. Mark, tell us about this. Yes, Reed. Uh, we already have in this country a federal law called the Fair Standards Labor Act, also, also known as the FSLA. And the FSLA sets forth the minimum standards of how employees are to get paid. So this includes rules for minimum wages and for overtime pay. So now states have the right to make their own laws. They can be more protective of employees, but not less. So, for example, the federal minimum wage in this country is $7.25 per hour. But here in California, the labor laws mandate a minimum wage of $9 per hour. So that's one example of how a state can be more protective of an employee. And a state could not set for, you know, for example, a state can't set a minimum wage at $5 because that would violate the federal law. That would be less and less protective of the employee. So when it comes to overtime payments, we have rules under the FSLA, and some states like California have different rules. California allows for daily and weekly overtime, whereas the federal law you're only entitled to overtime if you work over 40 hours in a week, no matter how many hours you work in a particular day. So let me explain that. In California, if you work more than eight hours in any given day, you get time and a half for all the time over eight hours. And if you work more than 12 hours, you get double time. It doesn't matter whether you work 48 hours in that particular week. Um, under the FSLA, you don't get overtime until you exceed 40 hours in a week. No matter how many hours you may have worked, you may have worked 10, 15, 20 hours in one day. You don't get overtime, not unless you reach 40 hours for that whole week. So the issue with this new law has to do with the characterization of an employee as being exempt from overtime. So what employers would do is give someone a managerial title, and so long as their salary was over $23,660, which comes out to $455 a week, they would not be entitled to overtime. 
That's less so, than 12 bucks an hour. So that's, that's yeah. not a lot. Yeah, so a manager getting paid 4.55 a week might work 50 or 60 you know hours in a week, but they would not get any any overtime. So what this law was supposed to do that was going to go into effect next week under the FSLA, um, they were going to raise the threshold uh, for exempt employees being subject to overtime. And they were going to more or less double it from the 23000 to a cap of 47892 That comes out to $913 a week. And that's for you know full-time executives, administrative and professional workers. Um, that's the, the group of people. So that what this means is a salaried employee would still get overtime pay if their annual compensation was less than $913 a week or almost $48,000 per year. So the effect of the, $24 an hour. Right. So the effect of the cap would have meant that about 5 million workers would have been entitled to overtime, whereas under the current law, they don't get the overtime so long as they earn 4.55 per week or more. So this would have uh, really raised um, the pay for a lot of workers across the country and hurt a lot of businesses. Um, so what happened was there were 21 states and a dozens of business groups that sued, complaining that the new rule would increase government costs in their states by about $115 million next year alone and would put private employers on the book on the hook for millions of dollars more, possibly leading to layoffs. Yeah. So well, let me ask you something, though. I mean, are there really a lot of managers running around out there making less than 43000 a year, or wasn't this just kind of like a sham that employees would use to shield themselves from complying with the overtime laws as they're already written? Well, they, they were saying there were about five million people that would have this would have affected had the law gone into effect. And so this is the fourth time in the past two years that a federal judge in Texas has issued a nationwide injunction blocking one of President Barack Obama's executive orders. Now the other. Obama initiatives that were stymied in Texas courtrooms involved shielding undocumented immigrants from deportation, mandating bathroom access for transgender students, and requiring labor violation disclosures by federal contractors. So this injunction stops that new law from going into effect next week. And, uh, interesting to see what the Trump administration does on this stuff. Yeah, it will be All interesting because right. they really haven't commented yet. We're going to move on. Uh, you're listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio. And check out our website at www.kuziklaw.com. Our last story of the day is Robert's story about Dennis Rodman. Apparently he was involved in an accident on the, in Santa Ana on Interstate 5, was driving the wrong way on the freeway, and hit somebody. Uh, what happened? I guess he's being tra- charged criminally now. Well, he is being charged. This is uh, Dennis the Worm Rodman. Well, all uh, NBA fans will, of course, uh, recall his uh, uh, you know, story career in the NBA as the leading rebounder for a number of teams, the Pistons, uh, uh, the Bulls, uh, the Spurs. Um, had quite, quite a controversial existence since departing the NBA. Actually, it was controversial when he was playing. Uh, photographed in a wedding dress. Uh, had a long, uh, well-publicized re- romance with Madonna. And lately has been in the news because he's befriended the dictator of, uh, of North Korea. Uh, so kind of, a, kind of an odd character. And apparently back in July, he was driving the wrong way in the carpool lane in Santa Ana, driving northbound in the southbound carpool lane. And uh, another vehicle coming in the opposite direction was forced to swerve into the retaining wall to avoid his his uh, his oncoming car. Um, according to the 
charges now lodged by the police, he uh, failed to stop, failed to identify himself, and is being charged with that, and is also being charged with reckless driving, um, although it doesn't look like, unfortunately, anybody was injured as a result of this. Uh, this happened at, uh, I think, uh, 12.30 or 1.30 in the morning, and, uh, you know, Mr. Rodman has had some pretty well-publicized brushes with police concerning alcohol and drugs as well. So whether that had a uh, role in any of this, uh, we'll, we don't know and may never know because the police were not able to question him that evening. Well, it seems like that could have been a clever move on his part. If he was under the influence of alcohol or drugs uh, and he left the scene, of course, that prevents the police from being able to take a blood test or observe him to see if he appears to be under the influence. Now, I understand that his attorneys have said that uh, the reason this happened was that the uh, exit ramp that he drove up the wrong way was poorly signed, so he just didn't realize it was an exit ramp. And they claim that Rodman actually did stop and speak to the people in the other car, and he left because his car never touched their car, so he didn't consider himself is required to stop. I, you know, I, I read that statement from his lawyers, and I had to laugh, too. I mean, any motorist in Southern California who's traveled between Los Angeles and Orange Counties, uh, Orange County being where this one heard uh, this accident happened, knows, I mean, the three ways down there are really in top-notch shape. I mean, they really are beautiful. And really, you can tell it's it's visible, and it's and it's it's everything else when you travel across, across the county line from Orange County into L.A. County. So the idea that somehow the design of the ramp had anything to do with this accident, especially considering the location of this particular freeway, I find particularly laughable. Um, and him leaving without identifying himself merely because there was no contact between his vehicle and the vehicle he forced into the retaining wall by driving the wrong way in the carpool lane, that's equally laughable. I mean, he caused that accident. He was required to stop and identify himself to the uh, to the other driver, which he apparently did not do. So kudos to his lawyers for some creative press release right. writing, but whether that's going to uh, shield him from these criminal charges, we'll just have to wait and see. Well, I'll point out that uh, it was 12.30 in the morning, so it's dark at night, so his lights had to be on. And when you drive the wrong way on a freeway on-ramp or a freeway, there the there's little buttons in the middle of the road that, that flash red, it's very clear, and it's just it, it's designed exactly for that to avoid this kind of a thing. So I, I think what they're trying to do is establish enough doubt to avoid a conviction under a criminal charge, but for sure he's going to be liable civilly. And fortunately, there weren't some big, you know, injuries or anything like that. But I do I, I agree with you. Kudos to. Uh, Mr. Rodman's lawyers for a creative argument uh, that no one will believe. Uh, all right, with that, I think we're going to wrap up the show. We we have gone a little bit over time. Uh, I appreciate everybody listening. Again, this is Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice, and we will be back next week at the same time. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio with Robert, Mark, and Reed. Remember to check us out at KuzikLaw.com. That's KuzikLaw.com. Each week, we analyze civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and all legal current events. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio.